Hi, my friends. It's Grace, your host of the Because Why Not podcast. I have such a special guest on today. You've heard me mention her name and refer to her many, many times before. And that is my best friend, Courtney, who lives in Denver, um, who I've been buddies with since I was three or four years old. She is really a big, important part of my life and has been for a very long time. And, um, I just am so thrilled and delighted to have her giving an interview today and be a part of this podcast because she is such a huge, uh, powerful, inspiring, strong, vibrant person and woman and such a force in my life and someone um, that I just respect and admire and look up to so much. And um, I'm really fortunate to call her my friend considering she is such an amazing person. Um, But as we always say to each other, you will always be my best friend because you know too much. And wow, have we been down some winding roads together, some long and winding roads. And we won't get into those today, but today we are going to talk about suicide prevention. September is Suicide Prevention Month. Um, Courtney lost her father um, to suicide in the year 2000. Her dad was also someone I was incredibly close with. Her parents were very much like second parents to me and really influential in my life. And um, so it is a a cause and a story near and dear to my heart and Courtney has amazing tools that she can teach everyone for how to help prevent suicides and this is a conversation that's so important to have and and some news that is really worth spreading so here we go let's get to my conversation with Courtney I hope you take away something from this today learn something new pass along this information and let's um help save some lives. Okay. Lots of love. Hello. Hi, my love. How are you? I'm well. How are you? I'm good. I'm so glad you're in here. This is super exciting. Well, it's an honor. Oh, I feel legit. Oh, I have like excited butterflies. I'm I don't usually feel like butterfly-ish when I'm doing this. I don't feel nervous. And of course, you don't make me feel nervous, but I'm um, just excited to be here with you because this, as you know, is a huge, um, important part of my year of transformation. And you've been a huge supporter of this and are so present with me every day. And it's just amazing to connect the two. So I'm going to do my best um, not to cry through the whole thing, but I'm feeling a lot. (laughs) Cry if you must. Show your (laughs) listeners how to be vulnerable. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I, I did a little intro before this, you know, about who you are, but I just will say again that Um, I'm so excited to welcome Courtney Hughes, who is my lifelong, truly longtime bestie and really like soul family, um, like a sister, more than a sister. I don't know what that means, but 
just really like such a deep connection to my heart and my life and my family. And I'm so happy to have you here and um, thankful that you're willing to do this with me. So Courtney, um, among other things, is among many other things. Courtney is a mom of two teenage or one almost teenage, one teenage girl, two girls, and um, is a tutor, um, a math tutor, which I just have to chuckle about because it's just something that always just makes me love you more that like you love math for fun. (laughs) And it's high school kids mostly that you tutor. Yeah. Amazing. Like helps people pass exams, helps people do well on SATs. Like it's just, it's just mind blowing to me. And if only you could have somehow tutored me as we walked alongside each other in school, in high school, maybe I would have done better, but I don't know how that would have ever worked. You turned out just fine. I did. I did. Do we really need, like, I hate to say this to you, you're a math tutor, but does one really need to study math in school if one is not great at math? Tell me what you think. Well, that, that's a good question. So I get this question all the time from my students, which is, when am I ever going to use this in life? And my answer to them is, you're not. <laughs> um, but you do need it to get through high school. Uh which then gets you to college, which you usually need to get you into whatever you're going to do in life. So it's one of the many pieces um, on the journey. That's a great way of saying it. It's part of the puzzle. Like it's a non-negotiable. And as you know, (laughs) where I am in my life with my children is, is, you know, in the stages of teaching them things that they need to be human beings living in the world. Like Fanny announced to me yesterday that he is the only kid in all of kindergarten who doesn't know how to wipe his own bottom. Yeah. yeah. And um, I said, first of all, I said, no one's that's not true. You. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> that's not true. And I said, no one's stopping you. Literally no one is stopping you. But the thing is that as I say to my boys, it's part of being a human being living in the world that you have to do this thing. And I think it makes sense that math is one of those things that you've got to do at a certain stage in your life to get to where you're going. If you're someone who's not inclined towards it, it's part of the puzzle. So yeah, yep, that makes a lot of sense. So you're a brilliant mathematician. Um, I want to just share because I don't know if Courtney would bring it up, but, um, but she did study, uh, I'm going to say it wrong. What did you study in college? You were sort of pre-med for a minute. Take, but you were take studying- a stab at it. Okay, I'm going to do it. Okay, I love that. Okay, so Courtney went to Vanderbilt University. We both went to Choate uh, Boarding School in Connecticut from Denver, where we went to a school in Denver together for, I went for 11 years from preschool through ninth grade. She went from preschool through eighth grade, went to Choate in ninth grade. I went in 10th grade. We both went to boarding school from Denver to Connecticut. So that was sort of a wild journey that we took together. But, um, you know, we all know my high school story, but Courtney's high school story, while faceted, many multifaceted, um, she ran cross country. She was brilliant at math and lots of other things and went to Vanderbilt and studied neuroscience. There you go. I knew you could do it. I mean, 
amazing. And you were pre-med for like a hot minute. And then we're like, and then I wasn't, and then I was, and then I wasn't, and then I was, and then I wasn't. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, and you were also a pie fi which yes, was, was super fun. And you also, you were a pie fi though, who wore like jean cutoffs and fish t-shirts. So it was like, <laughs> yes. yeah, there was a lot happening. I loved it. The early nineties were really good to us. Um, so you studied neuroscience and you worked in labs and you gosh, did all sorts of things and have had a wonderfully colorful life journey, but your career has been raising your children and doing an incredible job of being a full-time mom and then incorporating um, tutoring into your life and becoming busier and busier and busier at that because you're so good at it and you are have a full docket. So that's amazing. But we're here today because September is Suicide Prevention Month. Is that right? And um, so September is about to end and we wanted to do this podcast before September ends. But um, we want to also say in this podcast that um, September is not the only time that this is something that we should focus on or talk about. And we're going to talk about how to do that. But today um, we're going to talk about suicide prevention. Um, Courtney is on the board. Hey. Hi there. Before we proceed, I want to request that your next podcast is how to not become homicidal over technology frustrations or I love how, that. Idea. How to not have your vibrations down because your technology is down, something like that. I feel like that's brilliant because, as we <laughs> all know, it's easy to become homicidal um, over things not working. And we're wondering if Mercury is in retrograde or really if it's just that um, I still currently have a low budget operation going here. Yeah. <laughs> We just have to make do. Yeah. So it's all good. Bear with us and make do. Um, And um, I am not going to spend too much time on saying this, but I can't hear you too well. So I'm going to just um, listen up and do what I can. So um, we're going to just start where we left off. And um, I think where that is, is that we're talking about why you're here, which is that I hope, first of all, this is the first of many little cameos that I have from you on this podcast, but September is Suicide Prevention Month. And I want for you to tell my listeners um, about the board that you're on and, and what you do as it relates to suicide prevention. But we'll start with you um, telling us a little bit about your life story and, and what brought you here. Perfect. Um, so I, um, let's see, where do I want to begin with this? So my story is that I lost my father to suicide in the year 2000 when he was 51 years old. And at the time I was 23 and really didn't know, um, I didn't know how to help him. I didn't really understand what was wrong with him. And I'll get into that in a minute. Um, but I didn't know how to help him. I didn't know how to talk about it. 
Um, and I certainly did not know that suicide was um, the most preventable kind of death. And I will say for anyone out there who has lost someone to suicide that um, learning that it's so preventable can be a little bit painful. But the good news is that you can offer so much hope going forward. And I have been able to utilize these tools um, and truly save lives. And so I think that's the the positive message of hope in all this. Um, so talking about my dad specifically, um, he had he was not someone to my knowledge who had ever suffered from depression. And about six weeks before he died, he started to have um, tremendous physical pain, mostly in his stomach bounced around to lots of different doctors. No one could figure out what was wrong with him. At one point they said it's cancer of some internal organ. We just don't know which one. Um, and no one really knew what to do with him. And um, nobody thought to look into depression. My mom, as you know, was a psychologist. She had no clue. Uh, so we just didn't know. And knowing what I know now, primarily that physical pain without a medical explanation is a symptom of depression, mm-hmm. um, that plus some of the other symptoms that he exhibited, you know, I really, um, I really think his death could have been prevented. And one of the things that you learn in suicide prevention training is just how to ask the question of someone, how to ask them if they're suicidal. And again, I'll get to that in a minute, mm-hmm. but I remember, um, a couple of nights before my dad's death, um, having the thought, you know, I wonder if he's suicidal or being afraid that he was suicidal. And I have no idea where that thought came from. Mm-hmm. And I certainly didn't know what to do with that. Um, I was way too afraid to ask my mother or certainly him the question. And um, I, I couldn't even really admit to myself that it was a possibility. And I felt like asking it was going to make it more real or something. But point mm. being that I, that I did have some intuition. Um, and I think we can all get some intuition around this kind of stuff as well, especially if we're taught what to look for. Um, yeah. So fast forward about 15 years. Can I years. interrupt for just a second sure. before you sure. get there? Cause I want to comment on a few things. One is um, that you said your dad was 51 which is, of course, something I knew. I was there. Um, But we are 43. And so there's the piece of thinking that we're very close to that age. That's just really tough to wrap my brain around, right? And yeah. There's, there's like the little girl inside of me who's thinking like, he was a grown up, you know, he was, that's how we grown up. He was an adult and, you know, being at this age and, and now really understanding, um, just how young he was, especially having the 23 year old daughter and 24 year old son, um, Mm -hmm. just young and vivacious in every single way and full of life. And, um, I think, if it's okay, if I just sort of interject this, that um, he was the life of the party. Yeah. He was vivacious. He was hilarious. He was warm. He was joyful. Mm -hmm. He was kind, happy. He enjoyed life. He enjoyed his family. I mean, all of these things, which is why I think 
in my 19 years of mulling this over, um, that that's always remained a constant theme in my own questioning of, of the situation, which is that, you know, here's this happy person and we know that he was suffering greatly. Now we know, or, Mm -hmm. or just that there weren't, there weren't the conversations then. And I think that's just what I want to, you know, point to is one, one, how joyful of a person he truly was. And that for so long, that wasn't a mask. That wasn't fake. Right, you know? right. He was mm-hmm. extremely authentic in his joy. Um, but that this was in the year 2000, which is not 1940. Right. You know, it pretty advanced in terms of medical care and things. But the conversations just didn't exist then the way that they do now. And I just want to interject one thing that you've said to me many times throughout the years, which is even in the year 2000, there weren't those commercials on TV, you know, with the cartoon gray clouds. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, yep. here's the cloud hovering over your bed and you feel so bad or do you have aches and pains and you can't leave your bed and it feels dark. You know, you could be suffering from depression. They're just there wasn't that stuff. There was none of that. Right. There's um, that, there's that famous um, depression hurts commercial, which came out after his death. Do you remember yes. that one? Like who does depression hurt? Depression hurts everyone and it hurts everywhere in your body and you know, whatever. So yes. Um, yeah. Yes. And, you know, what's the conversation about physical pain and mm-hmm. we just thought that depression, everyone thought depression was all mental. And the fact that that no one could identify what was going on with him. And then the piece of, you know, the person he was married to and loved so much being a psychologist, but her, um, you know, probably, probably um, not wanting to know that it was something. Really oh, sure. Denial. Yeah. 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 Yeah, absolutely. And the piece of you having intuition, because I think intuition and gut, checks about feelings are a big thing that um, I learned from you in talking about suicide prevention. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, please continue to yeah. four to 15 years after. Well, and I, I guess one thing I, I want to touch on about my dad too, is that, um, you know, seven out of 10 suicides in the United States are white males Ooh. and the highest suicide rates are for adults. Um, ages 45 to 54. So, you know, he falls right, I mean, between being a white male and being between age 45 and 54, he does fall right in that age range. And I, I too feel like, wow, 51 is so young and not that far off from where I am now. And so many of my, you know, friends and friends' husbands and my spouse, you know, we all fall into that um, age range right now. And so that's all the more reason to have this important conversation um, and there, it's, it's becoming a tremendous problem for our youth as well, especially here in Colorado where I live. It's the leading cause of death for kids ages between 10 and 14 and the second leading cause of death for people age 15 to 24. Um, so it's a, it's a huge uh, problem. And do you know, is, is that the case? I know that you're in Denver, you're going to talk about the board that you serve on and what that is, um, but you know, of course, so much about Denver statistics. Do you have any sense for, because I'm always blown away by the staggering statistics about uh, young teens. I mean, it's, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. do you know that's the case 
about teens in other states or across the country? I I don't know specifically about teens. I do know um, I do know rates across the country in general. And um, so in North Carolina, I just pulled up my little map of statistics on it. In North Carolina, the suicide rate is um, 14 per 100,000, whereas in Colorado, it's almost 21. So we have a much higher suicide rate. The national average is 14. So North Carolina is right in line with that. Okay. Um, The lowest rate, incidentally, in the entire country is um, Washington, D.C., which is down at six per 100,000. Um, and New York State is right behind that at just over eight. And what's interesting about that is there is a correlation between spending on mental health care, which is extremely high in a state like New York, um, versus in Colorado. I think we're 48th in the nation for our spending on mental health care. Um, so we have very high suicide rates. Wow. And, and there also tends to be a part of the country, um, a lot of people call it the suicide belt, but it's basically runs down the Rocky, it's Alaska, and then Montana, Idaho, Wyoming, Colorado, New Mexico, it runs right down the Rocky Mountains. Um, and it has, those are the highest suicide rates um, in the country. And there's a couple different theories as to why that is, but nobody really knows. Um, some theories have to do with there's a lot of rural areas, so not as much access to mental health care. Um, there's also some people believe that at higher altitudes, you have less serotonin in the brain, so be more susceptible to depression. So there's, so there's some different theories around that, but no one has no one knows exactly why. That's um, really interesting. And I, yeah, of course, if um, if if I was taking a, a different turn with this, we could have a whole long conversation about um, money not spent on, on, on mental health care and how many, how many problems that causes, but we're not going to do that. I want, this is, this is a fact that remains and that exists. And um, we want to talk about how to help people, you know, what you're doing, which is empowering people and teaching people and um, focusing on the fact that uh, suicide, is preventable and yes. at the beginning uh, a really hard thing for people to hear including yourself who have yeah. experienced um, someone dying by suicide that it could have been prevented but this is how you uh, take your pain and and have yeah. carried it yeah, and turned it's it in. very cathartic for me um, to do this and again I you know quite a few people have come to me over the years of me doing this and let me know about how they were able to utilize this information to save someone's life. And I have been able to use it um, quite a few times to help save someone's life also. So, um, you know, obviously I can't ever bring my dad back, but helping save others is probably the next best thing. So, um, so I do, I guess I'm going to give a few more statistics about suicide or facts about it. um, And then I'll get into kind of signs like what to look for. Um, and then how to handle it if someone you love is suicidal. Um, so I, I talked about um, the white men and the ages. Um, and, you know, in general, in the United States, we have 129 suicides a day. So that's basically one person every 12 minutes. And if you think about um, a major airline, a major airplane crashing once a day, that's basically what's happening with suicide. You say that again. Say it again. So it's 129 per day, which is one every 12 minutes. 
Um, so it's, it's like the idea of a, you know, airplane crashing every single day. And worldwide, that number is 800,000 people. So almost a million people a year are dying by suicide. Wow. And um, that is more than our, more than we lose every year in armed conflicts, you know, homicide, like any other fatality basically combined. Wow. Um, Yeah. So it is, um, and veterans are about in the U.S., about 14% of the daily suicides are veterans. So about 20 veterans are dying every day by suicide. That is also something else we could spend perhaps an entire, another podcast on. <laughs> um, but just something to be aware of that um, people in the military are especially at risk. Well, I'm glad you shared that because I can just say from personal, my, my own life, you know, veterans are just not people that I have in my world. I don't mm-hmm anyone who has served and I know very little about the after effects other than you know sort of peripheral things I see on the news and that's a that's a really staggering statistic as I keep using that word but it really it really is and I think it's just something to really be aware of the support um that they need all around all around when they yeah yeah absolutely um, so I guess I'll go into some of the other, some of the protective factors. Sure. Um, so there's, there are things that make people more at risk for suicide and I'm going to get into those in a minute. And there are also ways that you can kind of, um, help protect against or, um, that can help both bolster up your emotional health. And, um, specifically, you know, I give this talk a lot to parents of middle school or high school aged children, because here in Colorado, as I mentioned, those, that population is especially at risk. And some really important things, um, are for, for the children, especially to have a trusted adult to feel safe at school. You know, unfortunately school shootings have become such a part of our reality and students who don't feel safe at school, either because they're worried about a shooting or they are worried about being bullied or whatever the case, um, those kids unfortunately are at greater risk. Uh, The kids who are really involved in extracurriculars, whether it be a sports or a choir or drama or just something, some sort of group, that they can direct their energy into those kids are also more protected. And then resiliency is a big buzzword in the suicide prevention community. And basically the idea of having positive coping and problem solving strategies. Mm -hmm. And I think there's this movement to get even further upstream of the suicide prevention and try, you know, for so long, I feel like we were reacting to suicides and now we're trying to get upstream of that and do suicide prevention. And now there's a movement to get even further upstream and teach kids resilience and other things. So it doesn't get to the point where we need to be intervening in a crisis. I love that getting ahead of it. Yeah. And, you know, I've, I've heard people refer to our generation of parenting as snowplow parents, where we try to pave everything out of the way for our kids so that they don't experience anything difficult or challenging. And the truth is, if they don't, then they also don't have the opportunity to work through it. They don't know what it feels like to face adversity. Um, so it's, it's just an interesting dialogue about how, generally speaking, we as a generation parent. And again, that could be a whole nother. We've got lots of, lots of things to podcast in the future about. But so, yes, I have heard that and I have experienced that. And 
probably do a bit of that myself, but is the, is the teaching resiliency, is that maybe a positive, that's the positive aspect. Yes. Yes. Of parenting. So yeah. that yeah. is a form of snowplow parenting that is really beneficial where we want for them to have tools. Right. Yeah. And I would say it's not, it's not an aspect of snowplow parenting. It's sort of the antithesis of snowplow parenting. Like instead of paving things out of the way, you let them come up against things, but then you give them the tools, how to handle those. Right. Cause you're teaching them resiliency. You're not solving everything for right. them. Right. You're not disallowing them to feel or experience. You're teaching them how to handle it. Exactly. Okay. I got it. Yeah. That, okay. Yeah. So, um, so the, the training that I am trained in and that I'm sort of facilitating a mini version of today is called QPR, which stands for Question, Persuade, and Refer. And there's several different suicide prevention programs out there, and they're all fabulous, and they all teach basically the same message. And this is the particular one that the organization I'm involved with um, uses. And... Um, I'll take a minute and just talk about that, which is um, it's the Johnson Depression Center, which is part of the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical School. And we are part of a national network of depression centers. And the idea is, you know, partly we, we do offer clinical treatment at the depression center. So there's tons of different clinicians that offer therapy and other treatments. Um, a huge part of our charter is free community programs and education. So people from our center will go into any school, church, home, you name it, and present any sort of, there's, there's a whole different series of talks. One of them is resiliency we were just talking about. One is, you know, um, anxiety, like when is it normal? When should I worry about my child, for example? Um, one about how to handle transitions. There's suicide prevention. There's all sorts of different talks that they give. But it's a large part of what the Depression Center does and a huge part of um what I feel so strongly about there. And then the other component is just destigmatizing mental health. Um, so, you know, as you mentioned, when my father died, there wasn't as much conversation around mental health. Because I grew up the child of a psychologist, you know, I, I do think mental health was a really common conversation at our dinner table and in our house, um, more than a lot of other people probably at that time. But it still wasn't what it is today. And by the way, it still has a long way to go. Um, you know, especially getting men to talk more about their feelings. You know, I don't think there's any coincidence between the highest suicide rates are amongst men. And, you know, men have a harder time, generally speaking, talking about their feelings. They think it's a sign of weakness. They think they need to be the stoic provider. Um, and they just don't generally gab with their girlfriends like we do. Mm -hmm. um, Cause it's quite one thing to talk about your feelings and you grew up talking about your feelings. Uh oh, I lost you. Day. Um, you know, people talking about how much pain they're in and, and how they don't want to get out of bed is much harder. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so with the depression center, I've gotten involved with um, 
hosting and then I got trained myself in suicide prevention. And so I'm going to just, I want to walk your listeners through the basic kind of steps. So QPR stands for question, persuade, refer. Um, so the first part is that you would question the person who is suicidal. The second part is you persuade them to get help. And the third part is you refer them to help you. No one is expected to be a mental health professional here or actually de-escalate the situation themselves. It's basically doing the warm handoff to a mental health professional. Mm-hmm. And this is what you would want to do anytime you are concerned about someone that you love or one of your children's friends or, you know, any, really anyone in your life. And part of being aware of when you might need to ask the question is being aware of the warning signs. So there are direct, um, there are verbal clues. They can be direct or indirect people saying, you know, as bluntly as I want to kill myself or I wish I was dead Um, or indirect people can say, you know, Oh, pretty soon you won't have to worry about me or, you know, I hope I don't wake up tomorrow or things like that. Um, And those are all really concerning things to hear. And as I go through these different types of warning signs, by the way, I want to point out that the more signs that are observed, the greater the risk. So if you see a couple signs, it may not be as dire. If you see a whole bunch of these signs, you know, big red flags. Although, again, I'm a huge advocate for um, intuition. So there are also behavioral signs. And just stop me anytime you have a question about any of these. Um, Behavioral signs are any previous suicide attempt, um, acquiring a gun or stockpiling pills. Now, again, if you have someone in your life that's a gun collector, that person getting a new gun, no big deal. If it's someone who has never owned a gun and suddenly owns a gun and is saying things that are a little bit off or has some other behaviors, you know, that's when you want to be concerned. Uh-huh. Um You can see, you know, depression or moodiness, um, putting personal affairs in order. There's a lot of different things, but it's also just keep like bearing in mind a drastic change in behavior, like something different. You know, the person was with my father, he was sort of fine one minute and then all of a sudden was very ill and not going to work and really not functioning. Uh Um, So that was obviously a very dramatic change in behavior. Uh Uh-huh. Um, then there are also what are called situational clues, and that's more external things that happen, like being fired or expelled, being diagnosed with a terminal illness, um, a divorce, for children bullying, things like that, that are sort of happening to the person beyond their control. And there's a quote that I really love from the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, um, because it talks about suicide is very multifaceted. When someone dies by suicide, people want to know why, and they want there to be this clean answer. Like, you know, he was in financial trouble, or he was getting a divorce, or he was this or that, or, um, or she. And yeah. it's never that simple. Um, So this quote that I love is, there's no single cause to suicide. It most often occurs when stressors exceed current coping abilities of someone suffering from a mental health condition. Um, And again, in the case of my father, we didn't even know that there was a mental health condition. In hindsight, it was very obvious, um, but we really didn't know. And again, my hope with this work is that people get more educated about what to look for, um, and, and then are able to have the conversation that I was not able to have. Yes. Um, so do you have any questions about the clues, the signs, or you want to say something else? Sorry. I do. Can you hear me? Yep. 
Okay, cool. Um, no, this is this is so great, and I'd love for you to read that quote again. And there's another um, quote that you've shared with me before that I'll remind you to say about. Um, about I know which one you're going to say. And I know you know what I'm talking about. So, um, I just want to say that what you're saying, what what you're what you're saying here, and there's so many different signs, behavioral um, and otherwise, but. What I'm hearing is, and what I've heard from you before, is that even if you notice one small clue or sign that it is, the cue is to ask the question to say, are you thinking about killing yourself? Mm -hmm. And that's the question that people need to know that they need to ask Mm -hmm. and not be afraid of asking and Mm -hmm that that asking it is really something that could um, be a life or death you know game changer yep well and that's that's um just gave me a perfect segue into the the next part i was going to say do you want me to read that quote again read that quote again that was okay so there is no single cause to suicide it most often occurs when stressors exceed current coping abilities of someone suffering from a mental health condition okay um yeah. But it's not always right. We don't always know that the person has a mental health condition. Um, a lot of times when people die by suicide, they do after the fact what they call a psychological autopsy and they go back and try to sort of, you know, figure out, okay, what were some of the factors that contributed to this? Um, but it really is multifaceted. It's, it's very rarely just a cause. Well, and I just want to say, if I forget to say this later, I'm going to say it now, which is that, um, <laughs> Unfortunately, I, I do think it's still so often the case that when people hear about someone dying by suicide, that their their go-to is to say that it's a selfish act. Mm-hmm. And, and um, this is such an important conversation for so many reasons. But one of the big ones, I think, is to put out there for people to really know and hear and understand that this has to do with mental illness. This is mm-hmm. about, um, hurting the, the people that they love. Yep. And of course there are isolated cases in every situation. Yep. Um, but I have to just sh- share personally, and, and I know that I've said this to you before, but my 23-year-old mind when your dad died and we all, of course, loved him so dearly. I loved him so dearly. And, and my 23-year-old mind went to the place of, you know, what I couldn't understand was why weren't his kids enough? Like, why weren't mm-hmm. David enough? Why was mm-hmm. enough? Like, why wasn't your family enough to keep you alive? And what I really colossally couldn't understand for years was about the physical depression the ad Mm -hmm. of depression and that is something that I just oh that we want for more people to understand that it's trying to hurt other people yeah so my insert quote here so I think the quote you were going to ask me about one of my favorites too is is talking about how you know people who kill themselves don't want to end their lives they just want to end their pain and is that the quote yeah was I right (laughs) um that one and it's uh the one that's that is yes profound and the other one is about um the the permanent 
the permanent. Oh, that it's yes, that it's a permanent solution to a temporary problem. Yes. Yeah. So, so the idea that people who are in a suicidal depression, um, they really, truly believe that they're a burden to others. They really feel that people would be better off without them, and they really can't find any other way to. They just want to get out of pain. Yeah. And there's um, an amazing gentleman by the name of Kevin Hines, I think it's H-I-N-E-S, who attempted to jump off the Golden Gate Bridge and survived. Um, He did jump. He attempted suicide by jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge. He survived. Um, And now he goes around telling his story. And um, I spell his name because I'd love for you or anyone else to look him up and see some of his videos and talks and Um, But he says, you know, one thing that, and I guess every other Golden Gate Bridge survivor has said the same thing, which is the minute his hands left the rail, he regretted it. Oh, my God. And he suddenly thought, oh, my gosh, these people, like, I didn't mean it. The people didn't know. You know, often people who are found hanging are found with their hands over the rope as if, like, around their neck as if they're trying to, like, get out of the rope. Mm -hmm. Um, So it, it really is a very impulsive act that you know, the people, the few people who do live about it to tell us about their attempt regret it. And so, and that is also very hard to hear when you've lost someone. Um, But it also gives you some idea of how, um, because it's so impulsive and how, how easy it might be to prevent it. And which gets back to, yes, that your question, I mean, you really directly are supposed to ask someone, you know, are you suicidal? And you're supposed to listen with no judgment and a really open heart and really show them that you're there for them and you support them. And people are afraid that if they ask the question, they're going to give the other person the idea. And you can't plant that idea in someone's head. You cannot make someone suicidal if they're not already. And lots of research studies show that just asking the person lowers their anxiety Um, it opens the door for conversation, like it instantly makes them feel better. And so I think that that is really important. Um, The one way you don't want to ask the question is by saying, you're not suicidal, are you? Mm. Um, Just like we don't want to say to our children, you know, you're not going to Johnny's house, are you? Because (laughs) that doesn't give them the, the space to have an open and, you know, to say, yes, I am. Like you're already telling them, I need to hear this certain answer from you. This is what I expect from you. Um, in your pants did you yeah yeah um well that I, I think that's an incredible point that yeah just to go back a couple seconds that that you said that um people are afraid to ask the question because they think it's going to put the idea in someone's mind and of course this isn't something you can plant in someone's mind nope you cannot and then there's been study after study on that and I also just thought of one other thing I want to touch back when you said about the the selfish thing and how you felt, um, you know, when my dad died, um, Kevin Hines, who I, the Golden Gate Bridge survivor also talks about how, you know, suicide and mental illness and addiction are the only diseases where we blame the person suffering. Uh-huh. Like there's this judgment. And, and the truth is that it's no different than any other organ failure you know, depression, all of those have biological components and you can see changes in the brain, in the brain of, you know, an addicted person, a depressed person, a suicidal person. Um, So that, that's something we really need to work on changing the conversation around. I mean, so, so important, you know, 
in my journey, not drinking, I've read many, 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 many things about, um, you know, how it's the only, not, not just only the only socially acceptable disease, but that people, um, people, you know, blame the person for yeah. it, something that they, that they choose. And yeah. I just say it's a weakness, it's a no weakness. willpower. Yeah. Right. Right. So that's just such an important point to make yeah. about these three things that it's, um, it's choice or fault. Yeah. 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 And I think, and one other thing I want to mention too, about changing the conversation is, you know, we're also really trying to get away from saying commit suicide. Yeah. I think I've had this conversation with you before, but we use commit in terms of, you know, committing a crime, committing a sin, having somebody committed to an institution, <laughs> But I, I don't think there are any positive connotations with the word commit. And we, in an effort to try to take away that stigma, that blame, um, that condemnation, um, I'm, I really encourage people to say, you know, died by suicide, killed themselves. Suicide itself is a verb. So you can say they suicided. Um, I didn't know that for the longest time. Um, but really just getting away from the language of saying commit suicide and getting away from saying things like, oh my God, traffic was so bad. I wanted to shoot myself or doing that motion of the, you know, pointing the gun at your head or whatever. That stuff is not funny and not appropriate. And there's really no need for it. Like, I think people need to take suicide seriously, um, and not joke around about it like that, if that makes sense. I'm glad you said all of that. Yes. We are all working so hard. (laughs) <laughs> to change the way that we say things and phrases that we no longer use and, you know, wanting to be sensitive. But I, I do think this goes um, beyond sort of uh, being PC and being sensitive. It's just that um, it's not a criminal act yes. and it's not, it's not a joke. Is it yep. okay um that they took their own lives. Yeah. Okay. Yep. It's ju- it's just the commit suicide. Yeah. That that a lot of people are really trying to get away from. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. So um, the the next part of so you ask the question. Cool. Okay. And I always encourage people when they're leaving my trainings to practice in the car, um, or turn to you know their spouse or their friend like. Practice the question out loud because then it won't be quite as hard when you actually have to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you can't ask the question, find someone who can. So for whatever reason, you just can't bring it upon yourself to ask the question, get someone else to do it. But you really want to ask the question if you're concerned about someone. Um, so the second part of QPR is persuade. And the idea is listening to the people, letting them know that you are there for them. Um, Another one of my favorite quotes is most people do not listen with the intent to understand. They listen with the intent to reply. Mm -hmm. And instead we want to listen with the intent to understand. And we want to let the person know that they are not alone, that you are there for them, with them, you support them, you care about them, and you're going to help them get help. Um, which leads to the R part. And I'm I'm doing like an hour and a half presentation in a short period of time, but I'm just trying to get the basics out there. Um, So the R part is refer. So suicidal people often believe they cannot be helped. So it's really important that you, you know, let them know that there's hope and that you can help them. 
um, or you, you help connect them with the person who can get help. So a great, um, great, great resource is the National Suicide Hotline. I'm going to give that number at the very end, but I'm telling people now if they want to get out their pens and pencils. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can call um, the National Suicide Hotline with your friend or your person you're concerned about. This is what they do all day long. So they know exactly how to handle the situation. They know who to send the person to. They know what to suggest. They know if they need to send an ambulance right away, if they need to, I mean, and let me interject and say that if you are truly, you know, if you're talking to someone who says, I have a gun and I want to kill myself right now, you call 911 or you take them to the emergency room. Um, you know, if, if it's, if you are concerned that they are going to be killing themselves momentarily, you need to go to the emergency room or call 911. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is just anyone that you, th- you know, think is down and exhibiting some of these signs and you are concerned that they're thinking about it. Okay. So um, you can call the National Suicide Hotline. You can, if they have a therapist, you can say, let's call your therapist together or can you call your therapist or get them in touch with someone that can get them help. Um, so basically, as I mentioned, it's kind of doing the warm handoff. And, and I want to reiterate that, you know, the, the job of us as the concerned friend is not to talk this person off the literal or proverbial ledge. It's simply to get them in the right hands and not leave them alone until they're in safe hands. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I, I think that's a really great point is not leaving them alone until they're in safe hands. Yeah. 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 Um, and I, I think, you know, part of the key is, as we talked about, just listening really open-minded and not judging and not trying to rationalize, you know, not saying like, oh my gosh, but you have so much to live for. Why would you feel this way? Which of course only makes the person feel worse. Yeah. Um, or, you know, don't be down. There's this to look forward to, or, you know, really you just want to meet them where they're at and validate their feelings um, because they're not in a rational place. And so trying to throw, you know, rational thoughts at it isn't really going to help. Yep. And again, they don't want to feel more judgment or shame for feeling the way that they do. Um, yeah, this is cool because I'm sitting here thinking, and I've heard you describe this before and use these words before and descriptions, but it's making me think, you know, this training is really so vital for suicide really such a powerful way of communicating anyway you know yes yes good point listen without the intent to respond um or you know with trying to meet someone where they are rather than recognize their feelings i mean what Mm -hmm. thing makes total sense and yet these are these incredibly powerful tools for saving someone's life and and you've broken it down in such a way that's just um you know something that people can hold on to and 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 take with them but i also want you to share and maybe you're getting to this in a little bit but where you know if if someone wants to do this more formal kind of training with someone how they could do that in their own area or maybe even bring it into, you know, their schools to to train. Like I would like to bring it to our school to train seventh and eighth grade. 
I think it'd be great to get it into high schools. I'd like to host one in my living room. So sort of how we go about that and spread the material. Yeah. So the good news, I mean, at least most of the schools I know here in Colorado have various programs. Um, as I said, this one's called QPR. There's also another one that's really well known in Colorado, but I think it's a national organization called Sources of Strength. Okay. But I would imagine that most of most schools in middle and high school have programs around this um, in their wellness or other classes. That's great. To- um, I, I do think parents need to get more educated because your kid, first of all, your kid may be learning about it and you don't even know that they are. And then they come home and they don't tell you about it and you can't really have the conversation. And I think it's important to have this conversation. Yeah. Um, really important to have this conversation. Um, and I would, I would suggest looking into suicide prevention. You know, there's the American society for suicide prevention that has chapters all over the place. Um, And I think really, if anyone looked up suicide prevention, there would be, um, you could find out some different resources in your area. Um, I wish I could, I guess I can look up for you, someone's in Durham, but I don't know all your listeners where all they are. Um, I want to, you know, address people everywhere here. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great point. We can just say that, you know, I'm coming from a place where um, my kids are little. It's not a conversation in school yet. It could very well be the case that it's um, a program in schools here in middle school and high school. But I think you make a great point that parents may not even know that it's something that's being addressed in school. And so it's a good thing to ask about. But even just to say that there are these organizations that you can reach out to if you want to know more and certainly knowing what the suicide prevention hotline is and and um yeah, learning these basic tools, even just walking away today, knowing that it's incredibly powerful, important, and okay. And in fact, what you ought to do to ask the question. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that is the biggest thing, you know, again, for people to feel empowered to be able, and it's hard. It is, it was hard the first time I did it, uh-huh. and what, which is why I encourage people to practice also. Um, but you know, worst case, the person says like, no, I'm not, I don't feel, you know, great. So, you know, that what, what happens if you don't ask and you wish you had, as is the case with me and my father, you know? Right. So I, I think it's really important. Um, and it does take some courage, but it's, um, it's really worth it. And I, I do want to give these, um, two phone numbers. Yes, please. For, I have to go and grab my own children, but, um, And I would love to do, you know, as stuff comes up, if we want to do a follow-up on this or, um, because I know it's a lot to process. No, it's a lot. And this is incredible. And I just so appreciate you being here and bearing with the technical difficulties of my little, uh, it's all good, little system over here. And next time we'll do a podcast on how to break up with your hairdresser. (laughs) Perfect. What we've been talking about, do a lighter subject, but you know what? It's important to talk about heavy things and especially for sure people are comfortable talking about and that, that people need tools to talk about. And so uh, I'm so appreciative and give these phone numbers and then um, you go sweet girls and um, share some phone numbers in the show notes and um, that'll be Yeah. So the, and I encourage everyone to put these numbers in their phone. My kids have these in their phone, everyone I know, because you don't want to be like trying to search up this phone number when you need it. So 
National Suicide Hotline is 1-800-273-TALK. Um, that's 1-800-273-8255. Um, then there's also Safe to Tell, and that is a text line mostly geared towards children, but it's an anonymous tip line. So, you know, an, an eighth grader can text this number and say, you know, I'm worried about so-and-so at such-and-such school. And the police will be notified in the school, but no one will ever know who it came from. And then, so the kids aren't feeling like they're telling on their friends or whatever, but the child gets checked on. And that's a really important resource, resource too. So that number is one eight seven seven four five two seven two three three, And then I'm going to leave us really quickly with a quick gratitude exercise because gratitude is the quickest way to change your mood and to be present in the moment and feel grateful for the things that you – or feel joy about the things that you're grateful for. Um, and I just learned this. I was at a depression center meeting earlier today and I just learned this and I think it'd be super fun for people to do with their kids at the dinner table or whatever. Great. But um, if you look at your hand, um, your pinky, you come up with something you're grateful for that's small. Your ring finger represents relationships. So you think of a relationship that you're grateful for. Your middle finger is um, something big that you're grateful for. Your pointer finger is something Grace, I might have lost you for a second. Are you there? I'm here. Okay, sorry. Do the, the middle finger something oh, big? You're... Something big that you're grateful for. The um, pointer finger is something you can point to in the room that you're grateful for. And your thumb is thumbs up. Um, something that you've done that you're proud of yourself for doing. That's amazing. I love So it. that's a fun, and just, yeah, gratitude is a cool way to in, in spark a little happiness if you need a little happiness. And spontaneous dance parties are the other thing that have been proven to show instant happiness and mood changing. So I'm going to leave your listeners with that good note. Love that. And I well, love you and I love being a part of this. And I appreciate, thank you for doing this and for all your wonderful, beautiful po podcasts and being vulnerable and bearing your soul with us. Oh my gosh. Well, I'm so grateful for you every single day. And I wish right I could have Chikatita dance party with you right now. <laughs> that sounds awesome. Fun. Okay. I Thank you for having me. I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Bye. Okay, bye.